0: From the rugged desert outside Yuma, Arizona, this is Outpost Outspoken. Outpost Outspoken is the official podcast of U.S. Army Yuma Proving Ground, which conducts natural environment testing of military equipment in Arizona, Alaska, and the tropics. Hello, I'm Mark Schauer. Thanks for being here today. Now when you started as a test officer here in 2009, you were working on the Bradley Fighting Vehicle, a legacy system, improvements to a legacy system. Now you're the integrator for next generation combat vehicle, which is a totally different ball game.
1: Yeah, it, so uh, when the Bradley was first designed, you know, many decades ago, it was designed for a, a Cold War type uh, scenario you know, conventional warfare, and so as we started to go over to Iraq and Afghanistan, we saw that the type of war that our troops were fighting was was not your conventional war, and so there was all these kind of ad hoc type add-on armors and different things to improve the survivability of the platforms, uh, the mobility of the platforms, and and even the reliability, Um, and, and these were problems that... You know, when when the vehicle was designed many decades ago, it it was never really a consideration. We never really thought that we were going to have these kinds of challenges. Uh, And so, it, it was definitely pretty neat to see some of the different technologies ranging from unique armor configurations to unique suspension configurations to powertrain. You know, anything under the gun really could have been upgraded during that time frame. They looked at all of it to help improve the survivability, lethality, mobility of the platform
0: and so what you're doing today for the next generation combat vehicle in large part the testing that you're doing today is going to inform the vehicle itself right
1: exactly so as they as the army looks at what we've learned from the last 20 years of irregular warfare and they couple that with you know the the previously the, the previous knowledge they had when they developed the big 5 weapon systems that they started fielding so now the Army coupling together the lessons learned from that, the lessons learned from a regular warfare and they're trying to see, you know, how, how they can blend that into a, a solution that will be able to support, you know, a, a fight against a near peer adversary or an irregular warfare type scenario but they also want to be able to develop a solution that's modular so that we're not, let's say, you know, pinpointed to a solution just fight a near peer adversary. You know, the army wants to to be smart about it. They want to make something that they can upgrade down the line and they can keep in service for decades. So the testing that's happening out here, you know, sometimes could be at a component level that's integrated onto a whole platform. Sometimes it could be an entire new platform that's out here, but it's it's information that goes directly to the decision makers to help inform, you know, do we think this technology is ready for prime time? Are we ready to to ask a contractor to try to integrate this type of technology, or do we think it needs more
0: time to develop and mature? And part of what you're looking at is a vehicle that would be optionally manned or unmanned. Correct. Yeah, that
1: that's that's part of the equation now as we start to see more and more unmanned vehicles, you know, in the in the private sector, right? You know, you have your Teslas, Waymo, and different companies like that that are working on unmanned vehicle operation. That technology, that the cost of the technology, the mature the cost is you know dropping drastically. The maturity is increasing, you know, with the more with the millions and millions of miles that you're seeing accumulated on Teslas and other unmanned systems. You know, especially what is it up in the Phoenix area? They do a lot of testing for. For some of the companies like Waymo and things of that nature, you know, testing unmanned ride share, unmanned taxi type services. So, you know, we've, we've got a lot more data to draw from in the private industry and lessons learned in the private industry now than, than we did, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Or even, you know, 15, 20 years ago during the future combat systems days.
0: Now, during Project Convergence 21, a lot of this... Technology in very early maturity was tested here at YPG or demonstrated here at YPG. And part of your role is ensuring this testing was done efficiently and safely. So, what did you have to do to plan for safe testing of, of something this new?
1: But that's a good question. So, there was, um, you know, I, I kind of got pulled in on the project uh, probably around this time last year, maybe like. February time frame and started to kind of absorb as much as I could as I was stepping into this role uh, and, you know, I was able to leverage my experience with various different types of tests out here, you know, with systems that were already fielded, systems that weren't fielded. Uh, so, so my experience, you know, with the different technology maturity of the systems, my experience with the, the safety mindset, the safety practices that we employ out here. You know, I was able early on to work with the appropriate stakeholders, you know, within the different test commodity areas to identify major concerns. And so, you know, pretty early on in the planning processes, we were able to to go back to the technology sponsors and say, hey, you know, with what you want to do out here in Project Convergence, you know, it, it's it's we need a little bit more information to ensure that we can safely conduct this test event. So there was a lot of pre-planning and advanced coordination. And it, it really it, it came together actually really well with with the amount of novel technology that we had, with the amount of you know kind of unprecedented type systems that we dealt with. Uh, I think we had some some awesome teammates you know within the ATEC and YPG specific organization, but also the army as a whole. I mean I I've not seen that much cooperation and collaboration before, to where. You know, almost any of the safety documents that we needed that helped us identify the preliminary risks associated with doing a test event were were provided to us in a timely manner. And, and that was, uh, that kind of teamwork, that kind of collaboration across the Army enterprise, you know, to me that that was like a, a perfect embodiment of, of why Army Futures Command was stood up. You know, things that would normally take decades to to do. Um, you know, to go through the safety processes and safety tests, you know, we were able to do in a matter of months, and we did it safely. And it, it's, it's unprecedented, whether it's unmanned mileage accumulation, you know, weapons firing of, of unfielded systems, you know, being able to safely conduct those types of things without major safety incidents is, is really unprecedented, but it's a testament to the, to the Army enterprise as a whole to really think outside the box to, to solve this problem. Sounds like there's
0: a lot of exciting stuff to come in the years ahead. Yeah.
1: I I mean, the the stuff that we got to see with Project Convergence, I think, was just the tip of the iceberg. I think there's a lot of neat technology that the Army's working on and and the Department of Defense as a whole. And I think, you know, the YPG customer service mentality, the YPG safety mentality, you know, our our flexibility is just going to be an asset to the Army, and it's going to help the Army and the DoD as a whole, you know, start to support these, these modernization initiatives because they know they can come down to YPG and we'll provide the support that they need to help ensure their mission successful. Jacob Brodovich, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me.
0: Through a quarter century in uniform and nearly 20 years as a civilian at New Proving Ground, Director of Operations Ron Rodriguez has been guided by martial arts for fitness and philosophy. But it was only in recent years that he finally got the opportunity to pursue the way of the sword. Ron, thanks for being here today. Can you tell us about the way of the sword? Sure,
2: Mark. Um, So the way of the sword, which is in Japanese kendo, is a traditional Japanese martial art. It's actually considered probably the most traditional of the Japanese martial arts. And uh, it's it's descendant from basically the, the practice of being a samurai and their art, which was kenjutsu. So uh, the the difference being uh, that a do is more of a a martial art, where uh, something like kenjutsu was actually a a actual fighting style. And so, as the Samurai started uh, getting mild for l- lack of a better term and, and not wanting to kill each other, they started developing a way to practice uh, without using real swords. And at first, they used what were, uh, or what we know nowadays as Boken or wooden swords. But as you can imagine, even with wooden swords, there were uh, a lot of injuries and a, uh, even a few deaths. So eventually, they developed what's known as a shinai, and a shinai is a bamboo sword uh, that you strike armor with, and uh, so when we practice, we can practice basically full contact.
0: Now you've been a martial arts enthusiast for quite a long time.
2: Yeah, I started martial arts in uh, 1973. I've I've been interested in martial arts pretty much as long as I can remember. Probably the big inf- biggest influence, uh, as for a lot of people of my generation, was Bruce Lee, uh, first in 1966 in The Green Hornet, and then in 1973 uh, when his movies started becoming US mainstream movies. What a lot of people now don't understand is we had never seen anything like him. I mean, we literally, uh, after the movies, would go out in the streets kicking the air and, and practicing our own form of kung fu. And, you know, I, I'm somewhat convinced that Carl Douglas took his song, Everybody's Kung Fu Fighting, from all the kids coming out of Bruce Lee movies at movie theaters. So, uh, yeah, I went into, into Chinese martial arts in 74, and then I went to Korea in 77, started practicing Korean martial arts, and got here and found out we had kendo here, so I started taking that.
0: Let's see, kendo seems like a fairly esoteric martial arts so far as the general public's concerned but there are other kendo practitioners here in yuma
2: yeah so i was actually surprised uh, so back in 1974 there was a movie called the yakuza which is a japanese term for uh they organized criminals and there was a scene in that movie where the one of the two lead actors one of the lead actors was robert Mitchell and the other one was a japanese actor named Takakura Ken, and Ken was playing a former yakuza, but he was also leading a kendo doja, or school, and uh, so there's this one scene and it's a couple minutes long where they're practicing a form of what's known as uh, kirikaish, which is basically where it's one of the first things you learn once you uh, once you start moving in kendo, and it's a it's a drill between two partners when you're in full armor, uh, where you you're striking basically twenty one times and you're doing footwork up and down the uh, the floor of the school. And so from that point on i I just had this desire to learn kendo, but I never was in a place where the opportunity uh, presented itself very well, so it never happened. One day, probably in late 2015, I was talking to Bill Heidner, and we started talking about that movie for some reason, and I said, yeah, I've always wanted to take Kendo. And he said, well, why don't you take it up at the college? And I said, what college? He said, AWC. And that's how I found out there was Kendo at the college. And that that class is every Saturday, and it's I've been taking it now since two thousand sixteen, since January two thousand sixteen, so six years.
0: Now, how much equipment and so forth is required to participate?
2: So I characterize Kendo kind of like golf. Uh, kendo can get very expensive. Um, you don't really need a lot of equipment. You can you can do basic Kendo uh, forms and katas or, or in pre forms with just a shinai, But if you want to get into actually working with a partner uh, full contact, then you're going to want to get armor and what's known as a, 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 a kendogi and a hakama, which is the jacket and the pants. But then there's also a men or a helmet, a doe or a chest protector, a tare or a hip and groin protector, and uh, two gloves that you wear called cote. And I got a really good deal back in 2016. I got the entire set for about $350, but it's not unusual for that to cost about $500. So one of the things is we get new students, we advise them don't worry about buying anything until you're sure you want to continue doing this because it is a pretty good investment.
0: It sounds like you have no plans of stopping anytime soon.
2: No, I mean, as long as my body will let me keep doing it, and it's, you know, in, in some ways, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a, great, it's a great workout, but I have actually sparred. I went to San Diego a couple years ago for a what they call the uh, final practice of the year, and I sparred with uh, a couple of very senior-ranking dons or black belts who were in their 70s and 80s, and uh, they had no problem with me.
0: Well, well, Ron, thanks so much for sharing with us today.
2: Mark, thank you for uh, having me.
0: This has been Outpost Outspoken. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time from the Army's busiest test center.